Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. Glad you're here today. Um, we're wrapping up a series that we began at the beginning of this month called Love Life. And uh, if, you're, if you're new here today, if you're, this is your first time in Encounter Church today, or maybe the first time you've been in a while, uh, I would encourage you. Jason referenced our app earlier. This is one of those series that you want to go back and listen to. And I, I can hear some of you who maybe even online because you don't want to even be here. Uh, look, I just wrapped up a divorce. There is no way I want to hear a series about love life. And I would encourage you to, to maybe just to kind of take a deep breath. It'll be our secret. You can still listen to it and no one will know. We're not tracking it. But I'm telling you, this series is a lot more than just about romantic relationships. This is about relationships in general. And even as the video was playing, as I was walking on stage, just the, the power of the cacophony of voices. Last week, we talked about speech and the power of speech and how our words have power. And what I want to do today is kind of pick up off of where I left, left last week. You, you didn't have to have heard it, but words have power. And one of the ways that words have power is the where words go after they've been said. And that even this bumper that we just played captures what happens inside of our heads after those kind of conversations. And today, I want to press into what I believe is one of the most powerful destructive forces in relationships, period. It reminds me of one of the most polluted places in the world, in fact. It's Lake Karachi. It's in Russia, a very obscure place in the Ural Mountains of Russia. And during the 1940s and 50s, there was the Cold War and an arms race. And because of the Americans dropping the bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, one of the fallout of that was Russians realizing that Americans had advanced beyond what they were capable of. Because in Nagasaki, it wasn't a hydrogen bomb, it was a plutonium bomb, which is far more powerful. This sent the Russians into a building frenzy. And shortly in the aftermath of Nagasaki, the Russians began constructing ref, um, plutonium refinement plants in obscure remote places and hidden cities throughout the nation, uh, throughout the region in the USSR. And the way they'd gotten this information was they'd had spies inside the Manhattan Project, which was what America's top secret program to build the atomic bomb was called. The Russian spies inside of the Manhattan Project had smuggled out details and had smuggled out how-tos. But they hadn't smuggled out everything. They'd only gotten certain secrets to the point that it was discovered in 1999 in declassified papers that in the plant that was built near Lake Karachi, they were holding plutonium with their bare hands, which is deadly. Because they hadn't stole that piece of paper that says, oh, by the way, when you handle nuclear waste and nuclear products, use gloves. They hadn't stole that piece of paper. They also didn't steal the, the pieces of paper tied to how to actually safely contain nuclear waste. One of the byproducts of refinement is a ton of nuclear waste that's dangerous, that can exist and radiate for hundreds if not thousands of years. And so when they built this plant near Lake Karachi, one of the things they noticed was that their waste facility kept overheating. And so they got tired of trying to keep it cool, so they began to dump toxic waste into the ponds and lakes that bordered this plant. One of these lakes, probably the most popular dumping spot, was a small remote lake called Lake Karachi. They would literally dump from open containers the plutonium byproducts into the water. The waste would sift down to the bottom and settle into the mud. 
In the 1960s, a severe drought hit the region, and the lake began to dry up. The Russians, because this is a top-secret enterprise, started to be relieved because they thought when the water evaporated, so would the evidence of the toxic waste. But what happened is the lake completely dried up, and all was left was a dry, dusty bedrock at the bottom. And in 1968, a violent windstorm, akin to something like a tornado, swept through the region. And when that windstorm hit that lake, the amount of dust thrown into the air, because all of that toxic waste had settled beneath the surface into the dust, and when that windstorm hit Lake Kirichi, the equivalent of Hiroshima happened. And over half a million people were exposed to the dust plumes that exploded as the violent windstorm swept through that area. It was like being in Hiroshima. That was the fallout. Babies were sick and dying. People began to get sick. Limbs, people were being born without limbs. Radiation sickness would creep in. And to this day, generations are marked by that violent windstorm that swept through and hit the dried up, dusty rock bed underneath Lake Karachi. The reason I thought about that story in the process of this final message is I realized that for some of us, that maybe you've never thought about it, but that captures brilliantly one of the most toxic fallouts that happens in relationships. It has maybe not the same radiological impact, but it has the same relational impact. And what I'm talking about is bitterness. Those things that go inside of you that linger, that lurk, that go beneath the surface, and they sit, and they soak. And it's that equivalent of that relational windstorm that passes through that I've watched relationships, not just romantic relationships, but I've watched relationships die in the aftermath of that toxic explosion. And for us to wrap up this series, I wanted to press into what bitterness not just is, I wanted us to look at how, how we can have a full understanding of the pathology of bitterness, how it forms. Because if you understand how it forms, you, you're in a starting place to stop it from forming. But then also how to process and move away from it. And to go there, I want to take, I want to look at a, mo a moment in, in a region that perhaps in some ways is just as foreign as Lake Karachi and the Ural Mountains of Russia today. It's about 3,000 years separated from us. It happens in a time period that's very remote and very distant from our lives. But what plays out in this moment, I think, is one of the most beautiful, vivid, clear descriptions of what bitterness is and how you and I can begin to move away from it. It's in the book of Ruth, which is a historical book in the Old Testament. To kind of give you a brief history of Israel and how the book of Ruth plays out, what you have is the Jewish people who were living um, underneath slaves in, in slavery in Egypt are rescued. God performs this miraculous deed. This is where the character that we know as Moses steps in. The Ten Commandments, if you saw that movie, that plays out there too. And they move from Egypt into a land that is now modern-day Israel. When they first arrive in Israel, there is a lot of feudal wars. Um, it's a little bit like Game of Thrones without the cussing and the graphic nudity, and maybe. And, and then what plays out in the midst of that is a period of ups and downs. There's really good moments. There's really bad moments. 
But the leadership is essentially military leadership. It's people who kind of rise up, they stop an enemy, and then they become the leader. And during this really violent, dark, sadistic time period, because the, this period of Israel's history is really dark, during this time period, there is a side story that begins to play out that's captured in the historical book that we call Ruth. And it centers around two ladies, Naomi and Ruth. And Naomi, during one of those dark periods of the judges, is what it's called, um, Naomi and her family move to Moab, which is modern-day Jordan. It borders Israel. It's on the other side of the Dead Sea. They move into Moab, and while there, her husband and her two sons, her two sons find wives. And so now this family is settled in Moab. And in a just terrifyingly tragic incident, Naomi loses her husband and her two sons. Because of the system, because of the, the cultural kind of confines in the day, this was a very patriarchal society, um, but it was also a society where men and women had a very defined roles. Men were the ones who would go out and they would leave and they would work in different kind of arenas and fields. The women were oftentimes the food gatherers. They were the ones in the market. They were the ones selling food in the market. And but there was no welfare system. Your welfare system in that day, if you lost your spouse, was your children. So when Naomi loses her husband and her two sons, she has no welfare system. She's in a foreign country. She owns nothing in this country. And so all of a sudden, in one fell swoop, Naomi and Ruth are in a pretty desolate place. They have no money. They have no food. And life looks really bleak. And this is the story, this is the backdrop for what sets up for what we're about to see. It says that in verse 16 of chapter 1 of Ruth, it says uh, that Naomi, just to give you, right before we jump in, Naomi is trying to get Ruth um, and her daughter Ophrah, not Oprah, Ophrah, to leave and to go back to Moab. She's like, look, I can't, she, um, in the culture of the day, she was obligated to give them a son. So if you died, um, this is not a great thing today, but back then, if you died, um, your brother-in-law would kind of step in and say, I got this, she's my wife now, okay? Horrible system, but that was the system back then, okay? Not advocating for that. Um, and so she was like, look, my two sons died. I don't have any other sons. I can't give you husbands. You need to go back to your country, move back to your parents' house, and get remarried. Because if you go with me, your life is over. And Ophrah says, okay, done. And she leaves. And then Ruth says this, but Ruth replied, verse 16, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. It says, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. It's this really moving statement and declaration. She's like, you don't understand, Naomi, I'm yours. I'm your daughter now. Your God is my God. A bold statement of faith. Your people, my people. I'm with you forever. And so what happens is these women set out in verse 19. It says, so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, which is in modern day Israel, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, 
can this be Naomi? Remember the men during the day or for the course of maybe periods of times would leave the village to go and work. And the women were the ones oftentimes left behind. And so that's why it says the women exclaimed, there is no men. This is barley harvest season. This is a big deal culturally. And so it's just the women. And what do the women do? When they see Naomi and Ruth walk in, they ask the question, can this be Naomi? Naomi says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Then the word Naomi, so in this time period, one of the things that would happen is oftentimes you would name your children based on certain characteristics that you noticed or that you hoped would develop in their lives. This still happens around the world, but this is what's going on here. Naomi means beautiful. It means pleasant. It means lovely. It's not just Naomi's physical kind of presence in that she was probably an incredibly beautiful woman. But it's also her disposition. She's lovely. She's pleasant. You've probably been around those. I I live with two women who are like this. My daughter every day wakes up and this is going to be the best day ever. Like literally her soccer coach last week was like, is this what she's like every day? Every day is the best day. I was like, yes. They're like, wow, that's that has to be really nice. (laughs) I was like. It is, actually. I was like, she gets it from her mom because, like, they both wake up and they have this, like, overall disposition that life is for them, that day is good. And literally, Ella woke up this morning. This is going to be the best day ever. I have church and then I got Dedham Day. Best day ever. Every day is the best day ever. And Naomi probably had this kind of disposition. She was pleasant and she was lovely. And what does she do when she walks in? They can see life has been hard on her. They see that physically... She's been distorted. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Look at me. Call me Mara. Because Mara means bitter. That's why she references it. it. She's like, call me Mara. I went away full, but I've come back empty. And what we see in these words, these few words, is a beautiful depiction. And I just want to run through really quickly the pathology of bitterness, because it is really helpful to understand how bitterness happens. None of us in our relationships say, I really want to hate you one day. I really want to wake up in the morning completely consumed by bitterness towards you, whether it's romantic or not. I just want to be in, I just want to be full of bitterness. Like Naomi never said in her life up to this point, I really hope one day people start calling me Mara. Like nobody's bucket list has that. That's not on anyone's bucket list. And yet, here she is. And so it's important to understand how. What's the pathology of bitterness? How does it form into our life? And the first thing that helps understand is that the pathology of bitterness begins with anger. Anger is the first step. Anger is a really helpful emotion. It tells us something's not right. Typically, what anger does really well is it tells us that we feel we've been wronged. It's an emotion. It's a flag that pops up instantaneously. And what it does, its its best purpose is to bring awareness to our mind and our body that we feel we've been wronged. That's anger's purpose, right? And anger can be triggered by something small, 
or something significant. I watch television, I get angry. I watch football, I can get angry. Some of us at 1 p.m. today may get angry if the Dolphins start to win. Why? Because we feel like we've been wronged. Why? Because we're Patriots fans and we're supposed to win all the time. We feel wronged in that moment. That's, that's what anger does. It tells us something has happened that makes us feel like we've been wronged. And when you feel like you've been wronged, you also feel like you're right. And that's subtle, but that's key. When you feel like you've been wronged, you feel like you're right. And in that moment, that moment of feeling like you're right, being right is a powerful feeling, isn't it? When you know you're right, you'll stand up. You'll stand it down. I got a six-year-old who thinks she's right all the time. It doesn't matter that I've been doing life for 37 years and that I know how to drive a car or whatever. Sometimes she will stand up to me and be like, Daddy, you don't know what you're doing. And I'm like, sweetheart, you have been alive for around roughly like 3,600 days, okay? You don't have life figured out. But she feels right. And when she feels right, she stands up tall and she tells me I'm wrong. And that's one of the things that anger does is it puts you in a posture of self-righteousness. But here's the key. We all get angry. Anger is a good thing. It's a helpful thing. But we don't always get bitter. So this is the turning point. This is where anger turns into bitterness. It's what happens next. You make a choice. You make a choice to push the anger down. You make a choice to leave the anger lurking and unresolved. You don't talk about it. Remember we talked about last week one of the patterns of speech is avoidance? You avoid it. Some of our personality types are like that. We're conflict avoidant. We don't want to bring up conflict, so we just stuff it in our little pouch over here, and it sits. And what happens when it sits Maybe it leaks out through passive-aggressive comments or actions, but it just lingers. And that choice to push it down and not resolve it is what begins the process of turning anger into bitterness. What happens is it starts to ferment, and it turns toxic. One of the New Testament letters, actually, I think has a really insightful way of speaking about bitterness. It's, it, it warns the people, uh, the letter of Hebrews, to the church, do not let any bitterness take root among you. It's a really helpful image because bitterness does take root. It seeps in and it starts to grow and it starts to spread. And where there is a root, there eventually is going to be some kind of fruit. So what's the fruit of bitterness look like? How can you identify it? Well, one is it's always fresh. It's fresh fruit. It doesn't matter if it happened 13 days ago, 13 years ago. It's still fresh. You've interacted, some of my family members I grew up with had some extreme bitterness towards life, and they would talk about incidents that occurred prior to me being born with a freshness like it happened yesterday. That's what happens with bitterness, is it's always present. The past is always chained to you. You never move past it. It distorts reality. In verse 22, right, what does Naomi say? Right before verse 22, Naomi says, I left here full, I've come back empty. But verse 22 says, Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law. 
She's so convinced she's empty. She doesn't even see the woman standing beside her. A woman who made a complete vow to her. A woman who said, I want to follow you. You are my mother. Like, let's just be real. If your spouse passed away, would you be making a law, a vow, a declaration to your in-laws? Wherever you go, I will go. Whatever you do, I will do. Would any of you, you ain't got to say it out loud because this thing's being recorded. But would any of you make a vow of commitment to your in-laws? Probably not, unless you're my in-laws, which are probably watching right now, and I love you. Of course I would make this vow. But for the rest of you, you probably wouldn't. And yet she does. She says, I'm with you. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, I'm with you. Naomi's reality has been distorted. She doesn't even see what she has. She is not empty. She has something extraordinary right beside her. She has family that didn't even have to be family with her. And, and what it does is another one of the pieces of fruit is it dominates her thinking. We begin to ruminate on it, which comes from uh, this classification of animals called ruminants. Cow, sheep, goat, yak, broad uh, reindeer. Um, and the way that they eat is they chew and then they swallow. And then it regurgitates chew, swallow again, regurgitate, chew, swallow again. And they do this over and over and over and over again. It's, it's how they ruminate. It's how they feed. But rumination is a thought process very similar to how they eat. We pull the thought back up, what they said to us, what they did to us, how they did it to us, and we chew on it, and then we swallow it. Then we bring it back up, chew and swallow it. Why do we do it? We don't want to do it, but we feel right. We've been wronged, thus we feel right. So we chew on it. We chew on it. We focus on what we lost. We focus on what they've taken from us. We fixate on the negative. And then eventually, just like Lake Kirchi, something comes along and disturbs it, and it blows up, and there's fallout. And that is the pathology of bitterness. That's what happens when we engage with bitterness. It's... And it's insidious. It can be, remember, this is small, a small anger piece can start this whole process. It doesn't have to be something someone did to you that was significant. It just be something small someone said to you. It can be something someone large did. But it starts with that moment of anger that gets pressed down, that we begin to let ferment, we ruminate. It may be as simple as you... Your spouse, you both work, your job has incredible amounts of pressure and demands on you. You feel the constant weight of clients and shareholders and goals and metrics and all this stuff that you can't control when you feel that. And you're constantly putting out fires. And then you walk into the house and your kids, whoom, your spouse, whoom, over you. And it just makes you angry a little bit. Because all you wanted is just to have a few minutes to have a breather, to not walk in and be accosted by people doing the exact same thing that they did all day to you. And somewhere in your mind, you had this belief that your spouse should know that and they should give you a little bit of a breather. They should step in and say, I got this, honey. 
Because their job doesn't have that type of demand on it. They're not emotionally empty the way you are. And so what happens is you get angry. You've got this unmet expectation that's not being fulfilled. And I would argue that probably 80% of the frustrations and the anger often caused in everyday relationships stem from unmet expectations that are often unvoiced expectations. When you don't voice an expectation, it still gets unmet. And when an unmet expectation occurs, frustration follows, anger wells up. And because you haven't voiced it, it keeps staying in that loop. And bitterness starts to creep in. That's how it can, it can start small. So how do we begin to move towards betterment, not bitterness? How do we take steps? Well, one is to realize, first of all, that we can stop new bitterness from creeping in. New bitterness from being formed. And Ruth 4, 14 through 17, it says, The, the women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord. Because what happens is Ruth 1 through 4, I wish we had weeks to go through this book. It's an incredible book, incredible story of what God does. But what happens is that Ruth ends up meeting Boaz, and Ruth and Boaz have this amazing kind of love story that begins to form. I can't read verse 13 because there's children in the room, but it's it's going well. And what happens in the aftermath is uh, family starts to grow. And this is that moment. It says that the women said to Naomi in aftermath of verse 13, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. Don't worry about that. That's a really deep concept. I wish we had time to press in that because it's incredibly beautiful and moving within itself. It says, May he become famous through Israel. Who's talking about the son that was just born. He will renew your life, sustain you in old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And I love it. I love the imagery. Here's a woman who just four chapters before has said, Call me Mara. My arms, my hands are empty. And now her hands are full with a son, a grandson, given to her by a woman that all the other women say is better than seven sons. Yes, there's loss. Yes, you can't replace those two sons that, you've, that have passed away. But these women are like, this, this, this girl, this daughter, Ruth, she's better than seven sons, which is a, seven is a very significant number. It means perfection, completeness. They're like, what you have in her is better than a full family. That's how good she is to you. And then to top it off, She's given to you a son. In the nuance of the language there, what happens? Naomi takes the son and she cares for him. She gets an opportunity to raise a boy all over again. She's in a better place. She's in a freer place. And I think the first step you need to realize, because some of us, let's just be honest, we walked in this room and we are carrying bitterness. We have bitterness deep inside of us. And it just sits and we ruminate over and over and over on it. And the first step to moving towards betterment, betterness, is to realize that you don't have to stay in your bitterness. 
That there is a path for bitter to become better. That's why Naomi has this moment. That's why we see this moment. It's because she, this woman who said, call me Mara because I'm empty, now has someone in her arms and she's full. You can be better. Your relationship can be better. It does not have to stay in this place. You do not have to stay in this place. I talked about anger as that first path. Here's the thing that you need to know about anger. Anger tells you you feel like you've been wronged. But sometimes those unmet, unvoiced expectations, those things that you never verbalized in the first place that you felt so wronged by, sometimes they're not even right. Sometimes they're just different. In our relationship, when we first got married, one of the things that uh, we were coached to do that was really helpful for us um, we would have these moments where you, you don't know sometimes you have expectations. Anger is how you discover them, okay? And we would have moments where we'd feel angry towards each other, and we would have to say, you know what? This is not a right or a wrong thing. This is a different thing. You grew up in a different household. You grew up in a different culture than I did. So what I think is right, you may think is wrong, but this is not a right or wrong. This is a different thing. And by recognizing that anger is just a gauge, it's just a blinking light, it tells you you need to take a step back and evaluate, not step in and lash out. Because that causes the spiral. So you take that step back and you look at your gauge. So I have a 2003 Buick LeSabre. And if you got in my car right now with me, you would swear the thing's about to blow up. Because as I'm driving down the road, it's going ding. And it's like, it's like flashing at me. It's like check engine light, ding. Gas cap is loose, ding. Check engine light. Gas cap is loose. Jenny got in the car with me this week. She was like, what is wrong with your car? I mean, it's like lit up like the 4th of July on my dashboard. And I was like, don't worry about it. My car's good. It's not going to fall apart. And she's like, it doesn't look like it. Well, the reason it doesn't look like it is because there was a common manufacturing flaw in 2003 Buick LeSabres, and it was that they used for um, the, it's called the filler head, right? This little tube that goes from your gas cap to your gas tank. They used um, a really sturdy metal um, clasp inside the gas cap, but they used the cheap plastic filler head. And so the gas cap twists on one way, but they screwed the filler head in another way. And so that constant torquing, that turn to it clicks, that <clears throat> to know it's safe, well, that torque, that, that pressure over time causes the filler head to slightly kind of break from the gas tank. Nothing major, it's just a small little metal flange that eventually gives way. And so a little bit of air creeps in and it triggers your warning system that your gas cap is loose and that you're leaking gas somewhere. Because I recognize there was a design flaw in my system, when I see that ding, I know that my car is not about to blow up. I recognize there's a design flaw and I live with it because I'm not about to pay $750 to fix Buick's design flaw, okay? But that's the reality, is for us, sometimes the anger we feel is a design flaw. It's telling us something is lacking, something is wrong, but in reality, that it's not something is wrong. It's just that there was an unmet, unvoiced belief or expectation hiding underneath the surface that in reality was not a right belief or expectation. You thought this about them when in reality it wasn't true about them. And that's why it's okay to feel angry. 
There's no problem with feeling angry. It's important to take a step back and to evaluate why the light came on in the first place. What belief, what expectation inside of me just got violated that I need to engage and deal with. And oftentimes, what that leads to is not bitterness. What that leads to is good conversation. You can say to your spouse or to your friend or to your family member, hey, that really frustrated me. And the reason that frustrated me is because I've never said this out loud to you, but I deal with people who complain all day long. And when I walk into home, the last thing I can emotionally handle is a complaint. And instead of like, hey, mom, or hey, dad, I'm so glad you're here. It's like, hey, mom, when's dinner? Or hey, dad, this broke. Or why didn't you pick this up? And, and I've never voiced this out loud, but that, that is the last thing I want to experience when I walk through the doors. I know it's not your fault. I've never said that out loud, that coming home and having like five, ten minutes to go walk into a room, change clothes, and mentally kind of physically switch gears is important to me. But I'm realizing because the frustration that happens when I pull in to the driveway that that's an important, passionate belief, expectation I have in this relationship. Can that work out? And all of a sudden that conversation can lead to progress. You're not condemning. You're not accusing. You're saying, this is what I felt. This is why I'm feeling it. These are the type of conversations Jenny and I have in the house. Is that we understand that there are things that sometimes even well into past a decade of being married, expectations we're still discovering. And oftentimes it's anger that's the first sign that those expectations have been there all along. And so the first step and that betterment process is recognizing it's there and taking that step to engage with it and to press into it and to have that conversation. And then to make a choice that you're not going to push it down. You're going to have a conversation around it. Or you're going to overlook it because sometimes, let's just be real, the things that make you angry are stupid. The things that make me angry are stupid. They don't need to have a conversation around it. We need to just let it go. Elsa had it right. Let it go. Like, just move on. The guy, when I was getting on a ferry during vacation who looked at me because I was standing on the yellow line and I wasn't standing here, I was standing here, and he looked at me. He's like, uh, you realize you're blocking all the people trying to get off the ferry with their bicycles. I want to turn around and be like, you realize you're about to get punched in the face? <laughs> and so I have, so we walk on the ferry and he sits right beside me. And I got a three minute ferry ride and I'm chewing hard. Cause we're like, do I say something to him? Do I make a little snide comment? Do I say, hey, I hope you sleep well tonight. I'm watching you. <laughs> I'm just sitting there. And I'm, and, and it's like, Elsa just pops in my mind and I'm like, Chris, let it go. It is not worth, it is not worth you getting arrested. It is, the problem is not with you. The problem is this guy whose life is so kind of in a frenzy that someone standing on a yellow line sends him into this like anger outburst at a person he's never met before. That's not your problem, bro. You should feel pity for him, not want to punch him. And after I got off and I walked a few steps, I was like, this is my last moment. I turned around, he's gone. I let it go. And I moved on. I was good. But we have to make that choice to either let it go because it's not significant or to have a conversation about it. That if we are able to do that, then we move into a place of betterment, not bitterness. And betterness is so much better 
than bitterness. And the last thing that is just intriguing, because this is the, the, that's the new bitterness. The old bitterness, the way you overcome that is a little different. It's forgiveness. It's you realizing what has been done to you. Small, significant, said or did. It's you coming to terms with, yes, it hurt. You, you acknowledging the pain. You evaluate the belief and the expectation that that pain came from. And you take a bold step. Maybe you say it out loud or maybe it's just in your heart where you have to say to them, I forgive you. What you did hurt me deeply. What you said to me went to places I didn't even know words could go. But I want you to know, I forgive you. And I recognize that sounds really easy to say out loud from a stage. It's really hard to practice it in the course of everyday life. Because you don't know what they did to me, Chris. You don't know what they said to me. But here's the reality that's, that's really helpful. Forgiveness is not about them becoming free. For, forgiveness is about you being free. Because bitterness is like drinking a poison and expecting that they're going to be the ones that die. Bitterness isn't affecting them. It's affecting you. Bitterness is not ruining their life. It's ruining your life. You forgive so that you can be free, not so that they can be free. You're not letting them off the hook. Forgiveness is not letting someone off the hook. Forgiveness is acknowledging what they put on that hook and what that hook did to you, but that that hook no longer has power over you. Forgiveness is about stepping into freedom. It's about you no longer have control over me. I'm not letting you off the hook. I'm telling you that I am actually choosing to no longer hold it against you. There's power in that. There's freedom in that. And you may have to wake up daily and decide that for a season of time to say, I forgive them. It does not mean you don't have boundaries. Some people need to be forgiven, but they still need the boundaries. Because they're dangerous. They're, they're harmful. But it means that you step away, you process through, and you step back in and you say, I forgive you, but you need to realize there's boundaries. And this is real. I did this with my father, who checked out before I was ever born. And who came back into my life, and all he did the two times he stepped back in was hurt me deeply again. And I worked through, and I've forgiven him. But there's also very clear boundaries in that relationship where he's never going to have the relationship that I wish I'd had growing up because he's not healthy and he is destructive and he is damaging. But the reality is I'm not walking around with those chains anymore. I'm free and you can be free too. And it starts with you being willing to forgive. And Ruth Fort. 17, it just says this, that at the end it says he was the father of Jesse. That just kind of gives you the lineage, the father of David. And the reason that I can be so confident there is nothing that you and I cannot move into forgiveness to is because of that sentence and what it's setting up. Because David is the picture. David is pointing to Jesus. Because out of David, the great king, would flow Jesus, the great king. A great king, David, was to set the stage for the great king coming to earth. And that he would step in and that he would bring freedom. And the way that he would bring freedom is that he would do for us what we never could do for ourselves. He would bring forgiveness to us. 
You see, the danger with anger is that you feel right and you feel self-righteous. But it's only because you compare yourself to who's underneath you and what they've done. Anyone can feel righteous when you compare yourself to Hitler or a criminal. But when you start to look up and your point of comparison is not someone who's beneath you, it's the one who's above you, all of a sudden your, your system of you being right starts to fall apart. And that's why I can be willing to let go of things where people have wronged me because I know ultimately at the end of the day what marked my life was that I had wronged God. I had wronged others. And that the brutal honesty of the cross was that I could not be good enough. I could not live my life with some self-righteous attitude because I never was righteous to begin with because I've wronged others. And that Jesus stepped into our world. He stepped into this life. God put on skin and flesh, and in love, he pursued us. And in his pursuit of us, he paved the way for forgiveness for us. He paved the way so that we could be free. And that many of us, oftentimes have experienced religion, which is that ruler, that kind of condemnation, that here's the right things you're supposed to do and the beating it into us. And religion up until Jesus' time and even in our time was about what you've done and how you should be right, forced down. from is this transformation from the outside in. Don't lie. Don't steal, right? It's this constant beating. And what motivates that is guilt. What motivates that is self-righteousness and record-keeping because you're trying to keep records of all these things that you're doing right. Check, check, check. The Ten Commandments becomes a to-do list instead of what you could not do list. And it breeds a self-righteousness that's motivated by guilt. And what does Jesus do? He comes and he flips the whole thing upside down and he brings transformation from the inside out. And he doesn't motivate us through guilt. He motivates us through grace. And the freedom that he brings. And the forgiveness that he brings. And for some of us today, maybe the step that you need to take is forgiving that spouse, that sibling, that family member, that loved one, that relationship. That you choose to forgive and to let it go. And to move on. And to experience fullness. For some of you today, that next step may be for you to step in to exploring a relationship, to look at not religion of outside-in transformation, but finding freedom at the very core of your being, of walking and moving and breathing from grace, not guilt, of realizing that Jesus came for you because he loves you, and that the name of Jesus, there is a power to break chains. There is a power to break addictions. There is a power to move into a life of a new you. And that for whatever, whoever it is today, this process of betterment, can have powerful transformation, not just in our life, but the generations that flow from our life. And that's why today, as we wrap up, I want us to close with a song that speaks to that power. And to give you a few minutes so that we still get home in time for the Patriots game and we're not pressing into anything, but to give you a free kind of breathing moment to evaluate where the bitterness may be lingering in your life and to give forgiveness. And maybe that's a phone call this afternoon or maybe that's just a moment right now but that we, we say, I forgive them. And for some of us, it may be in this moment that we look up to heaven and say, will you forgive me? And then I believe that today, no matter what you brought in, what chain you carry, you can walk out of this room free and forgiven.
Let's pray.